재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Some years ago I started calling myself Ginger Peter Sherlock Rosemary Emmanuel The Archbishop of Canterbury You may know me better as The Real Slim Shady Rumoured to be the new signing for Westminster and the Thames. And I just love to ride horses. But only if the Banjo Union Bolt has been correctly fitted. First chapter. It is time again for first chapter. We read you an excerpt from a different book every Sunday morning, usually from the exposition. Today, I'll be reading from the short story, So That They Do Not Hear Us, from the short story collection, Once the Shore, by Paul Yoon. Paul Yoon is a Korean-American fiction writer who has published two books, Once the Shore and Snow Hunters, which is a novel. He has won numerous awards and acclaim, including NPR's Best Debut Fiction of 2009. NPR had this to say about Once the Shore. For Yoon's cast, resilience is not just a stance, but an aesthetic. Women grow old and do not marry. Young men are lost at sea. Thus, in the rare moments when the men and the women in this book yearn for more, their resolve feels all the more poignant. We know instinctively that Yoon's lush sentences will end in heartache. The title of the story I'll read from is So That They Do Not Hear Us. It is set, like most other stories in the collection, on the fictional Korean island called Seolla, loosely based on Jeju Island. In the story, we meet a 66-year-old henyo referred to in this story as a sea woman named Arim. She recalls how she married at 17 during World War II, was widowed by 19, and never left the island. So That They Do Not Hear Us by Paul Yoon They were known as the sea women, and she was one of them. On the beach, clad in a wetsuit, Adim walked barefoot toward the water's edge, carrying an empty cage tied with rope across her back. A pocket knife hung from a leather strap around her wrist. In her hands were a pair of rubber fins and a set of goggles. She walked with the gait of the young, and her posture had remained straight all these years. She had last spring turned 66. Three of the women had already arrived on this morning as Adim performed her stretches. She asked of their children and their grandchildren. They asked of her house and her neighbors. The sun was rising, and with it, the waves shifted in color, striped red and violet. Above them, gulls hovered in the air, taking the slight winds. Summer was ending. The monsoons had calmed. Soon the cold would come. There was a sense of transition in the water, the sand losing its warmth. She liked this time best, the days in between seasons. She slipped on her fins and wished the others a good journey. She rubbed her fingers, as she always did, to bring them luck. And then, together, the women swam out to the sea. 
When her body had warmed and she had swum far enough away from the shore, away from the others, Arim leaned into the water, kicked her legs, and forgot for a moment that she ever needed air. She dove blind. The sea was dense, constricting. Then the water cleared and made room for her. She felt it shudder. The ocean floor lay 12 meters below, now 11. Submersion and the world consisted of light towers, sunlit, and she swam among them. There was the market to consider. What sold, what didn't, the time of year. Fresh mussels and clams eaten raw with a spicy dip seemed more popular during the spring and summer. Seaweed in a beef broth was preferred in colder weather. She considered this, thought it through, sacrificed one for another. Octopus, she often caught, in part due to her own pleasure at touching their bodies, their childlike gestures. She stayed under for two minutes. Then the dizziness arrived and her vision began to blur. At first, she ignored it, pushing herself forward, but her chest took over, caving. Pressure attacked the sides of her as though a sea god were yanking her by the hair, and she succumbed to the shock of it, straightening her body, her eyes focused upward on the aqueous sun. When she surfaced, she sucked in air, too fast at times, so that she suffocated by it, coughing, swallowing the seawater. There was the common fear each and every time, but always she looked down to see her hand below the water, clutching her prize. She had not let go, and always she dove again. She had done so for over 50 years now, as her mother did, and her grandmother before that. She went on until she was satisfied with her catches, her cage full, and only then did she return to the shore. The others, too, waded to the beach, and they gathered in a circle in the shallow water, and she joked with them, relieved that all of them had returned. They compared their catches, and sometimes they traded. They spoke of the houses several of them were building with the money they had earned. They spoke of the growing tourism industry and the export business that had, over recent years, provided for them. They spoke of profit. They parted with a nod and a wave. See you soon, and Adim headed to her blue pickup truck, where she unloaded the shellfish and the seaweed into ice boxes. She did all this with a deliberate slowness, waiting for them to leave first, watching the caravan of cars and trucks follow the coastal road. The gulls cast thin shadows on the sand and the women's footprints. She thought of the boy Shinaru and the news she would bring him. She thought of her husband, long gone. From the horizon came the faint sound of an airplane's engine, and she looked once more out to sea. The afternoon was approaching. She clutched the braid of her hair. The noise faded, and the water remained undisturbed, bright and closed, as if nothing in a thousand years had ever reached the surface and broken through. Thank you.
She was seven when she first dove, 13 when she started it as a profession, helping her parents earn a living. At 17, she married the son of a fisherman. This was in the time of the Japanese occupation, at the start of what would become the Second World War. One winter, during an uprising, they fled to the mountains. They slept in sheds and caves. She remembered smoke from distant fires, the speed of planes, a boy whose face was the color of crushed beets lying on the mountain passage, his legs frozen against his chest. Jinsu left on some nights with the other men, and she did not see him until the morning, when he would bury himself in her for warmth, smelling of wet wool, his body curled from the weight of snow. The following year, he was conscripted by the Japanese military, though to this day it was for her an abduction. They came for him riding horses. She clawed at their boots and the horse's flanks. They kicked her down and she hid her head against the base of a tree. Briefly, she lost consciousness. When she woke, her eyes focused on the animals and their soft sighs their white breaths, hooves lifting, stamping the ground, tremendous eyes, as if they had come from myth. And then Jinsu stepped into the view, bending over her, covering the sun and the leaves. I won't be long, he said, touching her face. She never heard from him again. Her last memory of him was of the horses trotting away and Jinsu turning trying to wave with his bound wrists, the white of his shirt, the dark of his skin, her husband, the centaur. He was 20 years old, she a year younger. They had no children. Their marriage had lasted seven seasons. This was over 45 years ago. Arim never moved from their home, although the majority of her neighbors then had now left for the cities. She lived in a village near the eastern coast by a road that passed through a field of forsythia. The house was a single room, its walls made of stone, a roof made of reed. Over the years, it had changed little, except for the roof. It was now in the Spanish style, with tiles the color of wet clay. Behind the house, there was a grove of tangerine trees that she and her husband had planted intending to harvest the fruit and sell them. These days, she donated the citrus to an orphanage or brought them to the city for the homeless. She never remarried. Her and Jinsu's parents passed away long ago. A life was formed, and she took it. Solitude came to her early, and these days it gave her little reason to seek the comfort of a man. The comfort of something, yes, but she did not know what it was exactly, desire having evolved over the years. On her days off, she took care of her neighbor's son after his schooling. Shinaru was 10 years old. Arim could no longer recall how this friendship started, when exactly the boy began to knock on her door. His father worked in a factory that packaged fruit. 
His mother worked in a noodle shop on the outskirts of the city. They were emigrants from a village on the coast of Japan. They had been on this island for three years. One morning, when they were still living in Japan, Shinaru was swimming with his parents. In the sea, they separated for a moment, and a tiger shark followed the boy. I was caught, Shinaru once said. That was how he introduced himself, lifting his left shoulder, his arm missing. He came to her this afternoon while Adim was watching television on her bed. She had, that morning, gone to the fish market where she sold half of her catches to a man who ran a restaurant in the city. A Thai company bought the other half. The child Shinaru knocked once, as was his habit, though Adim didn't answer right away. The afternoon light shone against the floor the way it did when she surfaced, the air always lighter than she expected against her, delicate. Shinaru didn't knock again. He was a curious child. He was patient. He either waited until the door opened or, after five minutes, left and tried again later on. A minute passed before Adim found the energy to rise, rub her face, and walk to the door. Today, the boy wore shorts and an old T-shirt that was, Adim guessed, his father's. It drooped low past his knees and was cinched at the waist by a nylon belt. His left sleeve, empty, swung as he fidgeted. He had last week seen an American film about Caesar and had put together this outfit. His hair was cropped short, which made his face seem round as a melon. His lips were stained red from a popsicle he had been eating. I heard the bed creak, Shinaru said, looking up. Together they spoke a mixture of Japanese and Korean, the two of them having become familiar with each other's language in these past years. It took you one minute to cross the room, he continued, calling her auntie. He smiled, showing where he had lost a tooth earlier that week. He slipped his tongue through the gap and made a farting noise. we played in between were If No One Will Listen by Kelly Clarkson, followed by Island from Wet. Today I read from Paul Yoon's So That They Do Not Hear Us, from his first book, Once the Shore. It is time for this week's quote. This week, our quote comes from The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. Time is the longest distance between two places. Once again, that was from The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams.
We have arrived at the end of our show. To learn more about next week's topic, please visit our website. I'm Jamie Chang. Have a wonderful week, and I'll be back next Sunday at 10 a.m. with another brand new installation of The Bookend. Taking us out is My One and Only Love by Kenny Burrell. <laughs>